arrived <clears throat> at the great story. You knew we had to come to this eventually. If you heard we were doing the life of David, you knew we had to eventually come to the greatest story, the most famous story in the Bible. We're going to read it today. It's so exciting. The story of David and Goliath, right? And it's a fantastic story. You know, it's not something that, it's just so gripping. It's not something you could ever interrupt, right? You can't like <clears throat> read half of it and then say, oh, I'm going to go mow the lawn and then come back or something, right? You've got to finish it. It draws you in because it is. It's worthy of the fame that it has. It's you've got this giant, you know, you've got this youth, you've got unbeatable odds, you've got this impossible situation, you want to know what's going to happen. So it's, it's just a great story as it is. And we're about to read it, Amanda's going to read it for us. Before we do, <clears throat> the one thing I wanted to kind of bring up for you to think about while we're reading, I've, I, I think I've mentioned this before. But when you're reading in your Bible and you, and you read the word Philistine, what you should think of in the back of your mind is Greek. If you read Philistine, you should think Greek because there's just, some, um, just a number of connections that have been made archaeologically and literarily uh, to, to help us understand that this, these sea people, they were the sea people at after a brief stay in Egypt, they ended up on the shores of Canaan and settled there. They, they came from across the sea. What sea? Well, they came from the Aegean Sea. And so there's a lot of evidence to tell us that what's behind the Philistines and the arrival of the Philistines in the land of Canaan at this time were, were Greek people coming over from Greece. And you can see it actually in this passage that's actually, you know, just dripping with Greek ointment here. Verses 5 through 7, just, just take the emphasis on armor that you see in verses 5 through 7 when we read it. You know, this thing about armor and weapons and just explaining and describing, it's very atypical of the Bible, not atypical of Homer. Right? You, you can read the book, uh, the Iliad, right? And you get to some parts. It's all about the weapons and the armor. In fact, book 18, I think, is, is completely devoted to the description of Achilles' armor. Okay? Not in the ancient Near East, but this, this is positively Homeric here, this uh, going through all the different kinds of armor that you could have, and um, you're probably looking and saying, what, what are greaves? You're wondering what greaves are. Greaves are these um, children, that it's, it's like a piece of armor that protects this part of your leg. Right? That's the greaves across the shin. Very commonplace. Uh, in the Aegean. And you have uh, bronze all over the place here as well. But the biggest thing that should make you think Greece, the biggest Grecian thing of this passage is what happens in verses 8 through 11, what the giant says. And that is battle by single combat. Battle by single combat. That is, you know, you have two armies and one, from one side comes one champion. In fact, this word here that's used, uh, champion, that's just one time in the whole Bible. We call that hapax. Hapax legomena. It's just one time in the whole Bible right here. One champion comes forth from one side. One champion comes forth from the other side. They duke it out, and the winner is the winner. Right? Battle by single combat. Okay? Not well attested in the ancient Near East very well attested 
in Greek hero culture, Philistine hero culture. And that's what you're getting here. So you, you, you say, why is that important? What's the big deal? Why am I going on about this? Because, friends, it shows us something very important about God's attitude toward culture, about how God interacts with culture. We might have, because, you know, culture is changing all the time. You get these new ideas, new cultural practices, new technologies. You're like, what do we do with them? You might be inclined to say, well, I don't see it, you know, in the Bible, so I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to deal with it. I want to walk away from it. But, you know, that's not what, what God does. At least not in this case. What he does is he goes, he takes what's in the culture, and he says, I'm going to use it. Almost like he takes the cultural practice, and he says, I'll see that practice, and I'll raise you 500. Because what he's doing here is he's taking this cultural feature, not part of Hebrew culture, but imported from the Aegean, and he says, I'm going to take single combat. I'm not only going to master it, but I'm going to show you that it, I'm going to make it mean more than it ever meant before. So you want to think about that when you face new developments in your culture. You recognize that God might have a different attitude toward it than you might think. You might realize, you might, you might think about this because God will take a cultural form and he'll ask his people to engage with it. Not like adopt it wholesale. I'm not saying, you know, you give a cell phone to your kid without, without a lot of stuff being there first. But are you discerning good from evil? Are you discerning good from evil in the cultural offering? Because that's what God is doing here. So is God into Texting? Could God, could the Holy Spirit use virtual reality? Could the Holy Spirit use online dating? Oh my gosh. Got to ask the question. Because look at what he does here. What he's saying here is I'm going to take this imported cultural practice of battle by champion and I'm going to use it to teach my people the greatest lesson of their lives. Please stand with me as we read from 1 Samuel 17. And if it's, you know, it is a long passage. If it's too much, you don't have to stand. I'm just asking you to do that because posture kind of affects our attention. We want to give our attention to this. So Amanda's going to read. We, we maybe um, are going to pass over a few paragraphs. She'll let you know. The whole thing is printed there in your, in your bulletin to go over. This is 1 Samuel 17. So the scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sakah, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Sakah and Azekah, and Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle formation to confront the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on the mountain on one side, while Israel was standing on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then a champion came forward from the army encampment of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath. His height was six cubits and a span, and he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze saber slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield carrier walked in front of him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, 
Why do you come out to draw up in battle formation? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man as your representative and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I have defied the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man so that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and very, fearf very fearful. And to verse 17, Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten slices of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the well-being of your brothers, and bring back confirmation from them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah, fighting the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper, and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the entrenchment encircling the camp while the army was going out in battle formation, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle formation, army against army. Then David left the baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line. And he entered and greeted his brothers. As he was speaking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. And to verse 26, Then David said to the men who were standing by him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and rids Israel of the disgrace? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he has dared to defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in agreement with the statement, saying, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard him when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why is it that you have come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I myself know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people replied with the same words as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they informed Saul and sent for him. And David said to Saul, May no one's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are only a youth, while he has been a warrior since his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a sheep from the flock, I went out after it and attacked it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it rose up against me, I grabbed it by its mane and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has defied the army of the living God. And David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And to verse 41. And then the Philistine came and approached David, with a shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he was contemptuous of him, for he was only a youth and reddish with a handsome appearance. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild animals. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a saber, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of armies." the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you and remove your head from you. Then I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth, 
so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this entire assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. Then it happened when the Philistine came closer to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone penetrated his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and the stone. He struck the Philistine and killed him and there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and finished him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Then the men of Israel and Judah rose up and shouted, and they pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Akron. And the Philistine dead lay along the way to Shaarim, even to Gath and Akron. Then the sons of Israel returned from their close pursuit of the Philistines and plundered their camps. And David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. Now when Saul had seen David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well done. Well-deserved fame for that story. What a story, right? And children, as you draw, we're so glad to have you with us today, children. Glad you're worshiping with us. As you're drawing now, you need to draw the giant. Make sure you dress him properly according to verses 5 through 7. Make sure you put the right armor on him. All right, so as we look at this, we have this giant who's coming at them. 126 pounds of armor, probably over nine and a half feet tall. Who can face him? Who can defeat this one? And if you, if you read through the passage, you'll, you'll notice there are two logical possibilities here of, of, of who could fight the giant. One of them is David's brother, Eliab. Uh, you know, in verse 28, that's, um, there's a lot actually in this passage. We didn't even read all of it about the brothers and this family of Jesse. Why, why is the author highlighting that for us? Because he's trying to show us when you have a family of seven brothers, you have wealth. In the ancient Near East, every new son meant more wealth because you were adding to the workforce. So what we're talking about here is a prominent family, a wealthy family, and this is the firstborn of the family. And you know, the firstborn, the job of the firstborn is to secure the rest of the family. That's the point of the firstborn, is that person brings security uh, to the rest of the family. So what you have is the firstborn of the prominent family. You could tell that they're rich because, you know, they're sending provisions to the front for the whole regiment. You know, the Bedouins have this great cheese that they send, you know, that they carry around. They dry it, and it lasts for a long time. It's a great, you know, source of long-term protein. And so, you know, they mention this cheese in the passage. It's great. So you, you get these provisions that are going to the front. Why? Because Jesse is a man of means. He's wealthy. That's the point. So who's going to fight this giant? Well, take a prominent family and the firstborn who would be the secure. He should be fighting the giant. Eliab should be fighting the giant, but he cannot. You know who's the other person who should be fighting the giant? Well, obvious choice also, King Saul. Right? Why do I say that? Well, King Saul, you remember, 
Back in the narrative, we found out in 1 Samuel 10, King Saul is head and shoulders above every other Israelite. Right? Remember that, right? And essentially, Saul's a giant. So wouldn't it make sense? You have giant from one army fight the giant from the other army? Saul should have been fighting him, but he cannot. Eliab can't fight him. Saul can't fight him. You know why? Because nobody can fight this foe. This was a foe nobody could come against. You know, if you try to trace back, like, where does this Goliath character come from? Where is he, where is he, if you try to trace him back, like, where is he coming from? You probably end up in Joshua chapter 11. Joshua defeats the Anakim, the sons of Anak, who are really this primordial kind of giant race descending from Arba. And uh, these guys, they just won't go away. Joshua defeats them. But then they don't go away. Some of them escape to the coastal lands, to, to Gath, where apparently they get picked up by the Philistines. So what you're talking about here is something that's really deep, the, this foe that doesn't go away. I would say positively primordial, terrifying in his appearance, the unbeatable one, verses 4 through 7, really. Actually, by the way, if you want to see a great rendition of this, Head on over to Lancaster County to the Theater of Sight and Sound. Yeah, amen. You've been there. They're, they're doing a production now of David, and it's their current production. If you've never been over there, it's a great treat. It's a great date. It's a great uh, treat for a child. Um, and they do a wonderful job, especially if you like theater craft. Just a tremendous production, Theater of Sight and Sound. And right now, they're doing the story of David. They actually have giants on the stage. It's great. Um, but anyway, Peter Lightheart, great commentator, he points out that uh, verse 5 there, if you look at verse 5, it says he was wearing the scale armor. Now, this is a certain kind of armor, Lightheart uh, points out. It's not different kinds of armor that we might think of. It's not plate armor, not even chain mail. This is scale armor just layered on there. And actually, in the Hebrew, it just says scales. He was wearing scales. So if you look at this picture, it's like you've got a serpent in front of you. You've got this scaled one who's coming out in front of you. And friends, I would suggest to you that this, this enemy is the great enemy that stands in the place of all enemies. This is the enemy that comes against the people of God at every opportunity to destroy the image of God in the world. And what does he do? What does he do? Verse 16, he mocks. So this Hebrew word, uh, the root there, harap, to reproach, to deride. And you can count it all across this passage where it is used six times. This is what the enemy does. He mocks. And what does he mock? He mocks the faith of the people of God. Because when does he come out? It says, um, in the morning and the evening, he comes out. That's the very time of the, their sacrifices, the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. He's coming out to mock their faith. That's what the primordial evil one is doing. He's the mocker. He's the one who's there to say, your faith is in vain. You cannot handle this. God cannot answer this. 
That's the enemy. That is what they faced. So who is up to this task of defeating the primordial foe, the scaled one? Well, Eliab couldn't do it. Saul couldn't do it. But at least Saul recognizes the one who could do it, the one to face this this evil. And so in verse 37, Saul issues probably the most faithful word of his entire life. Most faithful answer that he gives, verse 37, when he says to David, go. Yes, you go. And what Saul was doing there is acknowledging and recognizing the champion. First, acknowledging the need. See, see this, this story is so great. I have children just flocking up here to me. And it's like, tell us more, tell us more. <laughs> Fine, let the children come. You know, of such are the kingdom. I don't mind if children wander around here. It's great. So, Saul acknowledges the need. You know, what God wanted, what God wanted from the people of God here, he wanted, he wanted from the Israelites in this situation is simply this, that they recognize their need for a champion. And then that they recognize the champion, really two things, that they, they acknowledge their need for a champion, and then they recognize the champion. And so God uses this cultural import to teach them that most important lesson for them, and to recognize the champion when he stood before them. And so that's why in the passage you have first this great introduction. This is where David is introduced in verses 12 through 15. We didn't read it, but it's a section about David being introduced. And then at the end, what's the issue? Who is this guy? Right? Verses 55 through 58, the issue at the end. Who is this champion? We don't know. Abner doesn't know. Nobody knows. Who is the champion? That's the issue. Recognize the need for a champion and recognize the champion when he's there. Who is it? Eliab didn't, didn't recognize him, right? When he came before Eliab, he, instead he was burning with envy. And he should have known, of, any, of anybody on that field, Eliab, the older brother, should have known this was the champion because he was there when David was anointed as king. David was anointed as, as king before his very eyes. That has already happened. So Eliab had what he had the knowledge, had the background to be able to recognize that he does not. Instead, he mocks the champion. It becomes really sort of just like Goliath, mocking the champion. And Saul, at least to recognize it at this point, <laughs> recognized the champion. And so children, what you're doing now, what you're drawing is that next drawing is you're drawing the champion. You're recognizing the champion. And who is it? It's the shepherd. You know, sometimes we look at people and we say, to, we say about them, wow, I could do that job. I could do what that guy's doing. And we really have no idea because we've never done it. And that's what it is looking at the shepherd. You're like, oh, I could do that job. Mm. I don't know. Can you face the lions? Can you face bears? Well, you say, yeah, because the only time you, you face lions and bears is when they're in the zoo, right? And they're, you're, that's where the only time you see lions and bears are in the zoo, not 
not 1000 BC, ancient Israel. At that time, there were lions and bears all over the wilderness. You never know when one of them might not show up, and he probably will. So you had a shepherd who was a good shepherd, you know, one of those slings. You, you get a projectile from a sling, and children, pay attention. If you pay attention and do well today, you're going to get a special prize. It's going to be all about this. But you get, these, uh, you get that going with a sling, projectile goes 125 miles an hour. So this guy had faced evil before. He faced lions. And in this story, here's the champion right here. And so they needed a champion who had faced lions and bears, who could face this serpentine one now and deal him the death blow. That's our story, friends. So what's the moral of this story? What's the moral of this story? You cannot Fight the battles of your life. They're too much for you. You need to recognize the same thing they needed to recognize. You need a champion. And your problem is that you think you can handle your problems. That's the biggest mistake of your life. Think that you, you know, I've got the resources. Maybe you're tall. I'm tall enough to face these. Or I've got enough money. Or I've got the reason I can handle this. You cannot address the problems in your life because you can't address the real evil that comes against you in these problems. You think you have the wherewithal to do it, and that's the biggest mistake you can make. To think that you can handle your own problems. Eliab thinks Eliab can handle it. You know, go back to the sheep, David. I got this. I could do this. You know, a little more adjustment in the attitude. Just give me a little more time. I can handle it. He can't. Saul thinks he should be able to handle it. You know, just the right armor. If only, you know, just wait till Samuel shows up. We'll be able to handle it. He can't handle it. A little less worrying. A little more worrying. Can't do it. Biggest mistake of your life, friends. You know what? You know what your prime activity is as a people of God? Is to recognize the real champion. To know that you need a champion. That you cannot take the problems of your life, the real problems, the ones that are immobilizing, the ones that are debilitating, the the really big problems in your life, that you can't handle them. That's your job, first of all. Recognize that you can't. And then to recognize the champion when he is standing before you, when he shows up. Who is he? Who is the real champion? You know, this battle was announced back in Genesis 3.15 when it said there would come forth one, the seed of the woman, who will deal a death blow to the head of the serpentine one, the head of the serpent, right? You remember that. And so in this story, that's really what goes on. The head, go, the head is, the wound goes to the head of the, of the scaled one. That's just what David did. And in that, he's pointing us toward the actual champion, 
that fought the serpentine one, the one with these scales. He deal, dealt the scaled one, scaled creature, the, the head wound. You know, the puzzle of this passage in verse 54 is uh, it's really it's kind of confusing because it says there are these two things, Goliath's head and Goliath's armor. After the giant falls, it says in verse 54 that the Goliath's head goes to Jerusalem, Goliath's armor goes to his tent. And David had neither of those. <laughs> he, he, neither had, he neither had Jerusalem, because at that time it was a Jebusite city, and he didn't have his own tent, right? We see in verse 22, he had to leave his stuff with the baggage keeper, right? So what, what's the author doing? He's, he's inviting us to that moment to take a step back and look at the sweep of history, because eventually we, we understand that David probably did bring the head to Jerusalem. What's Jerusalem? The city of God. The head went to God's city. And our great hero, Jesus Christ, accomplished the victory against evil in that city. He did it at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And some people postulate that that's where actually Goliath's head was kept, at Golgotha. Some people think that. I don't know if that's true, but I do know this, that Jesus defeated evil there. That's where he crushed the head of the serpent. The serpent in, his, in his pierced foot, he, de- he dealt the death blow to the primordial evil against us at the place of the skull. So he defeated the mocker of our face. He's he's our real champion, is Christ. This primordial evil against which we all stand off at the place of the skull. That's where our champion was revealed. He did it in the same way, in weakness, and he won for us there. So friends, same is true, really, just as the Israelites had to recognize that you have to recognize the champion in the midst of your debilitating problems. Because your problem is not really the problem. It's the, it's the evil within the problem that mocks you. So some of you, what is it that, what is it that just stops you? Just the, I'm talking about the thing that stops your life, that you're like, I, no, this is too much paralyzes you. Maybe for some of you young people, it's tests at school, right? You're great until you hit a test, right? You hit the test, what happens? You freeze up. You can't face it, right? What is that? Well, the problem really isn't the test. It's the, it's the evil in the test. It's the problem within the problem. It's the mocking voice that comes at you. Through that is what is it saying? You can't do life. You can't succeed at life. That's your real, that's your real debilitating evil that comes at you. What do you need in that instance? You need to know you have a champion. You aren't the one facing your life. You aren't the one to make your life successful. Instead, it's your champion. It's Jesus Christ. He comes with you into that evil, and he wins. Or maybe some of you are having a catastrophe at work, and you're debilitated by it. 
Well, your problem is not the catastrophe. That's not the problem. The problem, right, is in, is in the mocking that comes forth in that problem, isn't it? It's the mocking that says you are, you're going to lose this job and you are not going to be able to provide for yourself, for your family. Isn't that it? Isn't that what freezes you up? You need to know you have a, you have a champion then to fight for you. Or you're in a relationship and you just can't move forward in the relationship because something needs to be said. You need to speak something, some truth in that relationship. You just can't do it. You're, you're frozen. You can't do it. Why? Because of what's of the mocking evil at you in that problem. It's not the problem. The mocking in the problem, what does it say to you? You will not be loved. You need your champion. You need Jesus Christ in that situation to come in and say, no, you will be loved. That's the way he works. What is it that you tremble before? What is it that you are paralyzed before in your life? For some of you, it might even be sexual abuse in your past. And when you, you know, you can't even, you, you can't even go back there. You can't even bring up those memories, right? Because it's just, it's too shameful. It's too degrading and too much shame uh, about your body in that, right? You can't even think about it. Now that, that's a giant. That's a giant. You, you also, it's, you need to know you have a champion there too to go back with you to those memories in an appropriate way, in an appropriate setting. You can go back to those memories with your champion and change that shame into something else. This is the way our lives work as the people of God. This is the lesson that he wanted us to learn. This is what they learned that day. You have a champion in Christ. You can face these giants. And you say, well, what do I, how does that work? What do I do? Well, you do what they did in this passage here. What do they do? They cry out, the battle is the Lord's. You know, Goliath comes with mocking. He fills the scene with mocking. David comes, he fills the scene with the Lord. Right? He's the one who uses the Lord's name. Verse 36, Yahweh. And he understands the real power is in knowing this is, this is Yahweh's battle. It's not mine. Right? Verse 47. The battle is the Lord's. And that's, that's why he gets the spoil. That's why he also gets the armor, you know, his tent. Where did that armor end up? Again, stepping back, it ends up with the priests of Nob. In whose tent? His tent. The Lord's tent is where it ends up. The Lord, it's, the Lord gets the spoils of the battle, the armor, because he was the one who fought the battle. The battle was his. And that's what you're recognizing. That's what, there was only one person in the Valley of Elah that day that understood that. The battle is the Lord's. That's how we come to the giants, these giants that paralyze us, by crying out the battle is the Lord's. And you know what happens when that happens? Then you can fight. Then you can fight. 
You notice in, in, when David called that out, when he knew that, verse 48, he could run toward the problem. He didn't run away from the problem. He ran toward the problem because he realized it wasn't his problem. So also, when you have a champion, you know that you can run toward your problem, not away from it. When the champion fights the battle, then the Israelites can fight. Verse 52, right? When the champion wins the battle, the Israelites go forth. When our, when our champion fights the battle for us that we can't fight, then we're in a position to be able to fight. When the anointed has already fought and won, because he defeated the enemy, we can face the problem in victory. That's the story. Well-deserved fame for this story. That's what it's pointing them to. That's what it's pointing us to as well. Let him fight. Let him take on that evil that you can't really face. You can recognize that you can't face it.